Hello and welcome back to the Maluli Asset Podcast. I'm your host, Casey Maluli, joined by Tom this week. Just the two of us. So this week we're going to do a follow-up to a video that I did last week that I thought was really important and, and really put some numbers behind a topic of conversation that we have a lot here in the office and with clients. And that is how often we can expect average returns from the stock market. I hope you'll link to the video in the show notes because it requires a little bit of, you got to be nimble, you got to check out a video, then listen to a podcast. Right. So I'm not going to make them, I'm going to provide the information for our, our dear listeners out there to make it easy for them. But uh, the video was based off, off of a post that Ryan Dietrich of Carson Wealth Management did, and he went back to 1950, so 72 years worth of data, and he looked at what the S&P 500 returned on an annual basis each year. He found that the average was just over 9%, 9.1% per year, and then he looked at in what years did the S&P 500 actually return 9% per year. He actually did between 8 and 10% just to... Give it a little bit of variance. Yep. And he found that there were only four years since 1950 that the S&P 500 has returned between 8 and 10%. Four. Those years were... And I didn't have this in the video, so this is a little extra... For our podcast listeners, the years were 1959, 1965, 2004, and 2016. 2016 was only 9, was between 8 and 10%. Yep. 2016. So those are all pretty spaced out, so no real rhyme or reason there. But that was, so 4 out of 72 is 5.5%. So my point in the video was you can expect to get not average returns 95% of the time, um, which I think is uh, a pretty um, shocking statistic, dare I say, uh, for for people, because I think a lot of people think that average returns are going to happen, not maybe not all the time, but the majority of the time. I've had some folks <clears throat> over the years who have said, well, hey, if we make... a year, what I want you to do is, at the beginning of January, every year, I want you to send me 7%. If we make 7%, send me 7%. If we make 20%, send me 20%. I'm like, it doesn't work that way. It does not work that way. But there are still some people walking around out there who believe, well, I should just get my 7%, or whatever the number is, that uh, they're not taking into account. Now, right now, trading costs are minimal. But in the past, that was a big part of doing transactions were the transaction costs, the commissions that were built into this. They're certainly not taking into effect capital gains. Mm -hmm. Are we going to sell stuff that has a short-term capital gain? Are we going to sell things that have a long-term capital gain? Are we netting gains and losses? What are we doing? There's, it's a lot more nuanced than just say, hey, we, you know, we're going to make 6% every year, send me 6%. Yeah. And what positions are you selling? Yeah. You know, are you selling something that was up yeah. over 100% and, and pairing that with something, you know? Yeah. Are we going to sell the loser that's going to rebound this yeah. year? Are we going to sell the winner that's going on like a five-year tear? 
what are we doing? So it's, uh, it's hard to slice that off. I'm going to slice off your 9.1% and mail it to you. I was going to lead us into the mistakes that happen when we expect average returns each year. So I guess that is mistake number one, is thinking that you can just live off of the gains in your account and, and not touch the principal. One of the things that Brennan always says is that returns are lumpy. And what that means is that... He uses a very good analogy, like a bottle of ketchup. When you go to put ketchup on your burger, it always comes out lumpy. Mm-hmm. And so you get a little bit, then you get nothing, you hit a little harder, you get a big blob. And that's kind of how your investment returns are often, they often look like that. A little bit, then nothing. Ketchup doesn't go back in the bottle, though, but so you don't get negative returns. But then, then all of a sudden, you get a, you know, in the, you know, one year where you make thirty percent. Well, that's what you got to think about how we calculate the average. Is if you return thirty percent in one year, and then nothing for the next two, you averaged ten percent over that three-year time period. <clears throat> that's right. Yeah. It's and not a, it's not a smooth ten percent each year. It's a thirty. And then nothing and nothing, or nothing, nothing, and then a 30. Yeah. It has happened, and it has happened in, you know, some people may be listening to this and they're like, yeah, right. Like, that would never happen. It's actually happened twice that I can remember in the last seven years, where, you know, we've had years where we had, you know, 25 or 30% returns in the market, and then a year of nothing. Mm -hmm. Or in the case of, uh, 2015, 14 and 15, two years of nothing. Really, we had you know a little gain and a little loss, and then I kind of averaged out to a big nothing. But 2013 was a 30%. Yeah. 2017, 30%. So you got to, you know, kind of like New York State Lottery, you got to be in it to win it. Yeah. <clears throat> we have the ability with hindsight to look back and say, oh, the market did nothing over those stretches well, of time. If we're talking about catch-up, is it hindsight? <sighs> nice. You're welcome. Real nice. <laughs> so, yeah, we look back and say the market was doing nothing. And you could make the argument for, that the market is doing nothing right now. Yeah. Uh, in this Actually, if you go back, to, if you, uh, it's not a scientific thing. This is kind of like cutting a cake. It's not exactly precise. But if you go back to June of 22, from June 22 through, we're recording this in the middle of January 23, market has given us nothing nothing it took a big a big hit in the first six months of 22 yeah and nothing means you know we've had two or three rallies of 15 to 20 percent and then subsequent drops of of that same amount a lot of that really kind of depends on where you draw the line now for most people in the investment universe they look at it on a calendar basis and they say, in 2022, I made this. In 2023, I'm going to make X. In 2020, I made this much. But sometimes if you were to say, hey, you know, one of the uh, clients that we work with is on a fiscal year. Fiscal year ends June 30th. So for them, they're measuring everything from July 1st through June 30th. I will tell you that the numbers look a lot better for this particular client because we had a meeting last night where we went through this and I'm like, you know, since June 30th, 
nothing's really happened except we have a lot of headlines that are scaring the crap out of people. Yeah, it, it does. It does really depend on on where you draw the lines, and uh, one of the mistakes might be. If you go through a, a stretch of time where an asset class or a certain area of the market or the market as a whole doesn't give you that return, let's say you have two years of nothing, some people might be tempted to switch strategies and sell those investments that have not been doing anything in favor of what has been working lately. And that is performance chasing at its finest. You're right. In the sense that, <clears throat> you know, we... Uh, get calls all the time from folks who are like, well, do you think we should be moving into international equities? Or do you think we should be moving heavier into bonds? Or should we be moving out of consumer discretionary into consumer staples? And that really does become, uh, like Casey said, uh, performance chasing. Because if you're hopping around from one group to the other, you're going to miss that regression back to the mean. And we've talked about this on recent podcasts that there is usually regression to the mean. And so if you have, we can just use the first half of January as an example. We had nine up days in a row, nine for NASDAQ. Uh, we haven't had that since, you know, in now three years, since 2020. So we're giving something back. We gave money. Uh, we gave some ground back yesterday. Uh, again today, we'll we'll see what the rest of the week brings. It's also option expiration. But you know, if you go nine days in a row in one direction, pretty good bet you're going to spend a good chunk of the next week giving back some ground. That's just the way this works. Yeah, it doesn't mean you have to do anything. And it also doesn't mean you have to grab at headlines. Like right now, people are starting to talk about the debt ceiling. Or as one of, uh, as a gentleman said, uh, this goes back like 10 years ago, I'm worried about the physical cliff. I was like, you mean the fiscal cliff? Yeah. So you can find a reason to sell or, or hop asset classes or strategies at, at any point. Every in time. day of the week. Every day of the week. So, but what. What we're also alluding to is if you uh, see a couple of down days in a row, uh, the best days of the year are usually sandwiched right in the middle of the worst days of the year. Mm -hmm. And so if you decide that you can't handle it anymore, you're probably going to give up a, a good opportunity uh, yeah. that's right around the corner. Yeah. Or sometimes they happen intraday. I mean, Ugh. we've talked a lot about CPI over the last 12 months, and those CPI release days uh, were, we saw some crazy swings. I mean, the one in, I think it was, was it October. No October or November. We were like down, futures were down like 3%, and then we ended the day up. We came out of the podcast recording. Yeah. And so the Dow was down, like you said, uh, like it was, I think it was pointing down like seven or 800 points. Yeah. And when we came out, we all went back to our desks. The Dow was up like 600 points. Yeah. It was like a 6% intraday swing. Yeah. So. so one of the traps when we talk about average returns is we've seen some folks over the years extrapolate average returns into infinity and beyond. And so they presume, well, the average return is 9%. I've been averaging 10% a year in my account. So 
I should just for the rest of my life estimate that I'm going to get between 9 and 10% a year. So if that's the case, well, I could retire. Mm-hmm. Trap. Yeah, that's called the sequence of return risk. It's talked a lot about, and basically the point is it, it, it matters when you retire, and it matters, uh, I mean, especially if you're using juiced up average numbers like that in your retirement projections, it could cost you a lot of money over, over, the, over your retirement. So that's why when we're working with clients and building projections for the future, we, have, we don't have a crystal ball and uh, it's, it's hard to project. And so what we do is we take an ax to that number and we usually wind up using a number that's around half of what the average returns are for stocks. And so, you know, if, if the historical return for stocks is a little over 9%, you know, we may be factoring something like 4 or 5% for the returns because what we know is that if your plan will work with just 4 or 5% returns from the risk side of the investment account, well, then, you know, if we make seven, great. We make nine, even better. Yeah. So if it works at four or five percent, we're gold. Yeah, we just we want to be sure of those numbers and, and taking the haircut uh, lets us be sure. I think one of the other things with sequence of return risk is it, you got to be, I mean, everyone's situation is different. So I think the real risk is if you're fully invested in stocks heading into retirement, and, and stocks have two bad years in a row, you, you know, you're going to feel that more than someone who's in something like a 60-40 or 70-30 um, portfolio. So if you're, you know, one of the other ways to, to protect against that sequence of return risk is to be diversified and to hold some, uh, some other asset classes in, in your portfolio other than stocks. You know, when we talk about... Um the average return for stocks, it's probably not a bad idea to talk about the average return for bonds right. as well, because we had an outlier event in 2022 where bonds lost a lot of money. I would venture to say that that's probably a one-off situation because I can't see the Fed raising rates 400 basis points every year for the next couple of years. In fact, they're talking about slowing down the rate of increases now. Uh, so not a recommendation to go out and buy bonds. What I'm talking about is when we have a good year in the market, we have to be prepared for a possible bad year, meaning we may give back some of those gains. Likewise, when we have a good year or a bad year in bonds, we have to be prepared the following year or two to see those things even out. Mm -hmm. So bad year in bonds in 2022. Let's see what happens in 2023. Just have that tucked away in your back pocket. Yeah. So I actually, I'm going to reference a post from A Wealth of Common Sense, which is Ben Carlson's blog. So when people talk about sequence of return risk, a lot of uh, people cite the period of time from 2000 to 2002 as like if you retired at the beginning of that time period it would be much different than if you retired at at the end of the 2020s especially this is just to demonstrate 
the difference between an all-stock portfolio and, let's say, a 60-40 portfolio. So the losses... Now, when Casey's talking about a 60-40 portfolio, he's talking about 60% in the market, 40% in cash and bonds. Right. So in an all-stock portfolio, you in between 2000, 2001, 2002, you would have lost 9% in 2000, 11, 12% in, two, in 2001, and then 22% in 2002. But if you were in a 60-40 portfolio instead you would have been down 0.4%, 4%, and then 8%. Yeah. So you cut the losses in half, basically. So that just goes to show, I, th- I think, diversification is something to consider when um, that is a concern. Yeah. So if you're, <clears throat> if you're someone who's preparing for retirement and you are 100% in stocks because you want to get that 9 or 10% return. Maybe you feel like you need that to continue hitting your goals. Maybe your goals need to be re-examined because when you have a year like 22 and the S&P 500 was down 19%, it's going to wreck your plan, at least in the short term. And so it's it's very dangerous uh, to be doing something like that. If you're 100% stock, you just have to strap on for the ride because you are going to get swung around. We don't typically recommend doing that unless we know, unless you know, we're aware of the client's situation that they have money to fund their living expenses for the next few years, plural, uh, and let you know give time for the market to work itself out. Yeah. Yeah, if you have, you know, three, four, five years of cash sitting in the bank account and want to spend that down instead of taking portfolio distributions, that is uh, a different story. But one of the other things that could happen when people are expecting average returns and maybe they're getting nothing or their accounts are down over the last couple of years is to, if you're still working, some people might just throw their hands up and say, this thing isn't working I'm tired of putting money in it and just seeing it go down. So they might just stop contributing completely. It happens a lot. So in the uh, 80s, when I was getting started in my career, I spent a lot of time trying to educate people about dollar cost averaging. The whole idea with dollar cost averaging is you take the same dollars every month and instead of saying, I'm going to invest $20,000 today... You may start with an investment and over the next 20 months, you're going to average in $1,000 every month so that there's some months where the prices of your investment are higher and you buy fewer shares. But then there's also times where you're, where it's lower and you're actually buying more shares with the same amount of money. So over time, we know that if the investment is going up in value, you're going to have more shares to benefit from. Right. The problem is timing it and you know no one has that crystal ball so they can say today is the lowest that this stock or this mutual fund or this etf this today is the lowest day it's ever going to be and so i'm dropping all my money into this thing right now yeah it just doesn't work that way and so uh averaging in to an investment on a regular basis really makes a lot of sense it also kind of takes away the fear, you know, we have folks that 
you know, they cashed in their 401k, they're rolling it over to us, they come in with a check, the biggest check they've probably ever seen in their lives. And, you know, it takes a lot of guts to say, okay, uh, January 19th, that's the day that we're, we're going to put this money to work. Yeah. Even though it's going to work out, uh, it's still scary because if the market goes down a lot in February, you feel like you made a bad decision. Right. You felt yeah. like you made a bad decision, even though you may not have actually made a bad decision. Right. So uh, it's especially important for people in their 30s, 40s, and early 50s to not stop contributing just because um, the account hasn't been going up recently. So you're right in the sense that, you know, what went wrong with dollar cost averaging? Dollar cost averaging for my new clients as a baby broker, uh, that that worked great. It really did until 1987. Because for the first eight months of the year, I heard people say, I can't believe I'm still buying this. I could have bought more last year at lower prices. Now the market is so high. And then after October of 1987, guess what happened to all those dollar cost averaging plans? Canceled. Yeah. No one wanted to put any money in, which was probably one of the single best opportunities ever yeah. to put money in. But they just didn't want to do it because they felt like they were throwing good money after bad. Yeah. That's a problem. Yeah. It's a mistake. So the last one here that I'm going to touch on is kind of circles back to the first point with people who want a smooth four, five, six percent a year and just want to live off the gains of the account. These are people that get preyed upon by annuity sales salespeople. Yeah. yeah, yeah. If you if you want some kind of I I want this outcome from an investment, someone will sell it to you. Yeah. So annuities are annuities are never bought. Annuities are sold. They have to be sold to people. And if you're in search of a guaranteed smooth return, 3%, 4%, whatever the number is, an annuity salesperson will sell it to you. And they will get a new Cadillac next year if they sell enough of these things. Yeah. And you might get 4% in in with that annuity, but you'll miss out on the years that are 20%, 25%. You'll you'll get your four, right. uh, but you'll miss out on all that potential upside because these products are usually capped at some low level. So what Casey's referring to with a cap is if you buy a deferred annuity uh, that's variable in some way, uh, there's usually a ceiling on how much you're entitled to earn. It may be tied to an index, but you only share in part of the upside, not the entire upside. Right. We're also getting to a point where rates on fixed annuities, not variable, fixed annuities are actually starting to get up into these three, four, four plus percent rates. Mm -hmm. uh, hey, if you want to continue to compound money at a smooth, I don't have to worry kind of 4% rate, okay, that's great. Just understand inflation last year was over 8%. Right. You are losing money. Right. You're not keeping up. Yeah. So just to really bring things full circle here, 
going back to Ryan Dietrich's post dating back to 1950 and the S&P 500 returns, he looked at um, how many in how many years was there a 20% gain or more since 1950? If you had to guess, what would your guess be? Over 72 years. 20% or more. A 20% gain or more in the market. I'm going to guess about a third, maybe 24, 25 years. 20. Okay. So 27.4% of the years since 1950. One out of four years. Yeah. Market's been up over 20%. So that also means that, you know, if we're getting 9% or there about, there's also negative years in there as well. But if you want to have a 9% compounded annual growth rate, you're going to have some years where you're making 20% plus, and you're going to have some years where you're losing money or giving background. It's totally okay. One of the messages we've been delivering to folks over the last 12 months has been, if you continue to invest, you are buying more and more shares at these kind of prices. You are only going to benefit when the market recovers or when this investment recovers. It's true. And uh, I think it's important to, it's important for, for people to know that and, and to not fall into these traps and to not make these mistakes when we're talking about average returns. I think our job is to, to set expectations and I think that this podcast was, was really uh, just trying to do that. So that is going to wrap it up for this week's podcast. Thanks as always for listening and we'll be back with you next week. Tom Maluli is an investment advisor representative with Maluli Asset Management. All opinions expressed by Tom and his podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Maluli Asset Management. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Clients of Maluli Asset Management may maintain positions and securities discussed in this podcast.